Meditations on the Nature of God, Part 1 Through the Valley and Into the Garden So I just finished an abortion episode, and I was fired up, and then something happened, and I had to do this podcast episode right away. Now, I'm trying to pitch my critical thinking algorithm so I can teach it at work, and I have three critical thinking podcast episodes on it, critical thinking part one, two, and three. And my boss, he's the coolest boss you can have, but he's got standards, right? And if it's not first-in-class kind of type training... It's not something that I'm going to be able to officially teach. And since there's very little consensus in the field of critical thinking, in my opinion, primarily because not very many people know how to do it, I'm surveying these university courses to see what the consensus is on, you know, best in class critical thinking training. So I'm taking all these university courses. Now there's free university courses, legit courses from University of Queensland in Australia, University of Michigan, University of California, Davis, and this is where I'm taking these courses from. And if you didn't know this, you can take thousands of awesome, free, legit university courses in hundreds of subjects from hundreds of different universities, even Yale, Stanford, and yes, even my friends at Harvard, all for free. And I found three websites that publish these courses in you know, they kind of link all these university offerings through these uh, websites, and it's all free. And the three ones that I found were Coursera.org, Learning.edx.org, and FutureLearn.com. And you can take these amazing university courses all for free, no strings attached. I mean, I think you can pay a little extra and like get you know credits for them or whatever. But I'm just taking them for free, like uh, and. You know, I'm taking these courses to sort of analogize my critical thinking algorithm, which again, you can find in my critical thinking podcast episodes, part one, two, and three. So as you might know, I'm a man of faith, but I'm in these courses about logic and philosophy, and I'm finding myself following, you know, this kind of these humanist, uh, you know, logic uh, sort of uh, processes and working through all these, you know, sort of godless uh, philosophical theories about the nature of God and duality of the mind and body and nature of God and man and whether man created God or God created man. And let me say at the outset, you know, I'm not interested in making any kind of partisan political points or challenging your beliefs or advancing an agenda. I like you just the way you are. And I think of myself as an objectivist, and I've said this a whole bunch of times, but I think it's really important in this one too. Because this gets kind of churchy, and I promise you that like you don't know anybody like me, and I'm inviting you into my mind, right? So if you spend time in what I call my sonic gravity, you'll hear what I see, and you'll see the world through the eyes of a madman, me. And so today, I, I've talked about this before, and today I achieved illumination again. And I felt my brain kind of like expand and it was racing away from me. And it seemed like it was racing outward in all directions on these sort of like lucid beams of like sort of divine comprehension. Right. And I wasn't, I was totally sober and I was trying to hang on to them. Like, and it, 
kind of reminded me of like Wonder Woman, like lassoing the lightning. And I don't know if you saw Wonder Woman 1984, but it was epic. And I came out of my office and I kind of started rambling at my wife and sister-in-law. And I might not have been totally making sense to them, but I was like tingling all over, all down my spine and through my fingers. And I went back to my office and I was trying to capture all my philosophical and sort of spiritual epiphanies. And so I had to absolutely rip a podcast episode uh, while I was kind of still on fire. And, you know, but even if you're not the same religion as me, I promise that you'll still be able to enjoy what I experienced today. Because on one hand, you'll say, okay, good for you, dude. You know, but there's also kind of some secular philosophical logic that's pretty interesting to consider. I mean, especially if you're like an atheist or something. Because you'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. There's no God, yeah. And then you'll be like, oh, no, wait a minute. What are you talking about? And so, I mean, I think you're going to see that you'll be standing next to me in the Garden of Eden, even if you don't believe in sort of the Garden of Eden. But you'll know for certain that godless logic led you there. And if you believe in a different God than me, like my God kind of led me through this sort of agonizing sort of spiritual exercise where I felt like it was kind of wrong for me to be like thinking all this stuff. And I thought I was like as far from God as I was like could go, you know, and it just boom, it just led me right back into his arms. And I'm sure that if your God's different, then your God's going to bless you too, just like mine blessed me. And so it's kind of, it's kind of like one of my battalion commanders. When I was a combat engineer, I was a lieutenant, I was a platoon leader, you know, my battalion commander, you know, there's like a platoon of 30 people or so. And then there's a company that's like three or four platoons. And then there's like four or five companies inside a battalion. And so my battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Martin at the time, he was awesome. He became a general. And, and at, at some point I heard about this sort of amazing dissertation he wrote at the Army War College. And it was about leadership and it was about a leadership model, a leadership method that just changed the world. Because you see, there was this leader like 2,000 years ago, and what he did was he focused his energy on just like his 12 closest, uh, you know, friends. You know, he just supervised. The, the, he empowered them, he supported them, he loved them, he mentored them, he taught them. And he focused most of his energy on those 12 people that he sort of directly supervised. And then he spent some focus on other people other than the 12, but it was mostly kind of an inverted pyramid where the sort of the base of the pyramid, you know, the most of his focus was on the 12 people immediately he supervised and then kind of less and less as you go down. But the magic thing was then those 12 people, when they were prepared and ready, they found a group of, you know, sort of their 12 sort of like, you know, group of prodigies or whatever. And then they focused on them just like that. And then, and then it go, kind of goes, you know, those people, like when they were ready, they focused on like their group of people and just kind of went down and down and down like a Ponzi scheme, you know what I mean? And so on. And so 2,000 years later, this leader had totally changed the world. Even two millennia later, billions of people still call his name. And right, and of course I'm talking about Jesus Christ, right? But here's the thing. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then you're like, okay, obviously he changed the world because he was the Son of God, right? But the crazy part is, if you don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then you must accept that that leadership model is earth-changing because... If you don't think his influence came from God, then it only came from just like leadership, right? And so if you care about like being a leader and like world changing leadership, then it's kind of hard to find like a better example to study of like stronger leadership, right? It's awesome. Like Jesus' leadership was amazing. And logically, you know, the same is true about Muhammad. If you're Muslim, then you believe there is no other God than Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. 
and billions of people follow Islam, right? So if you believe in Islam, obviously you're not surprised that Muhammad has influenced billions of people and shaped modern civilization across the globe too. But if you don't believe in Islam, then because of the sheer number of people who follow Islam, then you must accept that Muhammad's uh, leadership model is just as influential as Jesus, right? And so anyway, the bottom line is, is that it doesn't matter what you believe, you can kind of take something away, you know what I mean? And so... All I'm saying is that in my opinion, I think there's something here for everybody. No matter what you do or what you believe, you be the judge. And so, and if you're a Christian, I'm warning you, buckle up because you are not going to like this discussion as you follow me through the sort of godless secular logic that I had to grind through. And you're going to hear some things that you're not going to like like or agree with and it's going to make you uncomfortable. You, I, you will feel like the prodigal son. Like remember Luke 15, 11, 32, you will leave the father's presence and you will enter a very dark place, but by the end, you will return to his grace for sure and be edified by the light. Like one of my favorite psalms that starts uh, Psalm 23:4 is, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I mean, that's, I mean, I felt that verse like come over me. And that was like right when all of a sudden, like I just hit illumination. And so first we needed to define God and morality to go through kind of this logic that I was going through as I was taking this course and trying to like, you know, participate sort of like intellectually in the lesson. And so let's define God just so we're all talking about the same thing as a supreme being who's only good and all powerful and all knowing and omnipresent and certainly not created by man, I mean, responsible for creating the universe and everything in it. And then morality, I sort of visualize as behavior, you know, and thought which humans follow, like containing the things that they believe that please God and the things sometimes that offend God too, right? So let's go into the valley. So it's like this, we equate God with good. Then everything God does is good and must be good, right? But there is undeniably evil in the world. But if God is all-powerful and God can do anything, then anything is good. But not so, because some things are evil in the world. If there's evil in the world and if God is always good, then God can't do evil, right? So what about neutral things? Can God do neutral things? Neutral isn't good, right? Like, what about farts? Farts are natural, right? Maybe some people's farts are evil. They're definitely not good, but God made us farters. Does that mean because God made us and we fart, does that mean farts are good by proxy? Maybe farts are neutral, and maybe God didn't make us to fart, but maybe if we eat evil food, maybe farts are expelling the evil nature from the chimichanga we just ate. Or maybe farts are good and God intended us to fart. So next time someone farts, maybe you should say thank you. Well, by the way, though, the olfactory nerve in your body that transmits signals from your tongue and your nose to the brain, no lie. It transmits signals from those two senses, taste and smell. So it's a medical truth that when you smell a fart, you're actually tasting it too. And that is a fact. But if God is good, and 
God is perfect and God does no evil, right? Then there are things in the universe that God can't do. Maybe it can't do neutral things or just evil things. But at the end of the day, and this is the logic that God gave us, right? This is the reason that we use to obey his, you know, laws and make moral decisions, you know, or maybe it's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which is essentially that which turned us away from God. Either way, logic tells us in an infinite universe, anything is possible. And if we can conceive of something like neutral or evil acts, then anything we can conceive is possible, and that is a fact. And in an infinite universe, and in infinite possibilities, anything that is possible must be inevitable, and that is a fact. And if it's inevitable, it must exist, and that too is a fact. Therefore, neutral and evil acts must exist, and if God is only good, then there's this zone of neutral acts and zone of evil that God can't commit, God can't do. And so then there must be some neutral and evil things that God can't do, which means he can't be all powerful if there's kind of a force field that prevents him from doing anything that's like neutral or evil or neutral evil. And if he can't do something, then he can't be all-powerful. Because if he can't do anything, including evil, then that means there are some things that he can't do. And if there are some things that he can't do, then he cannot be all-powerful. And if he can't be all-powerful, can he really be God? And if there are some things that God can't do because of the nature of those things as evil or neutral, then the nature of evil acts prevent God from doing those kinds of things, right? And if evil can contain God away from doing certain things, then if evil contains God, evil must exist apart from God. And if God can only do good things, then God's action is limited to good things. And then God's action must be essentially limited to goodness which kind of turns into a chicken and the egg situation, right? Where God can only do good, which is defined as that which is not evil or neutral, and the nature of good is only that which is not evil or neutral. And since there's kind of a nature of evil and neutral that God can't do, then whatever's left over is the nature of good, which is the extent of God's power occupying only those acts that are by nature good, i.e. not evil or neutral. And so there's kind of a chicken and the egg situation where God can only do good, which is by definition not of neutral or evil nature, which means it's only of good nature, which is good because God does it, which can't be by nature evil or neutral and only good because God only does good and everything so on and on. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg. But If there's an egg side of that equation at all, then the nature of good is a limit on God's action. Even though God's action is good, when it becomes a chicken and an egg, the egg shows that signifies that the nature of good is a container for God. Because he can only do good. So control so on some on some level. 
the nature of good is like imprisoning God. And if if it's controlling God on any level, then it must be apart. It must good must exist apart from God. So then, good and evil must exist apart from God because good and evil controls where God can operate. So there must be a nature of good and evil that exists outside God. So do you see it? Do you see it? Humanistic philosophy just led us to the conclusion that the nature of good and evil exists outside God. And that's when I sort of began to feel this like tranquility of green pastures and I felt him beside me with his rod comforting me. And I realized that it wasn't sacrilege to consider the nature of good and evil existing outside and a part of God. Because I could smell the flowers, I could hear the birds, I looked up and I'd proved with secular logic that God was separate from good and evil and I looked up and I was standing in the shade of the tree of knowledge of good and evil standing in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was all around me. An hour before, it was like I had taken a bite of the fruit, right? And I had like walked away into this valley where, and he led me through this ugly valley where I was like talking about, is he God and could that be right? And is he contained by good? And so it was really sort of a, kind of a, it was a distressing sort of contemplation, you know, like those thoughts were just, they were just really unpleasant for me to, to uh, you know, to, to process, you know. And it was like, it was like during that time, I was like going through this valley, right? And before I knew it though, boom, he led me right into the Garden of Eden. He let me in and I, I sort of felt like the prodigal son, you know, I was home. And I felt his grace and mercy kind of just wash over me like a flood. And that was when I hit illumination today. And now I think of Genesis, right? In the Garden of Eden and kind of like it or not, now Genesis makes a lot of sense to me. Like at first read it, you know, oh, it's a garden and fruit and that's kind of a little nutty and fairy tale-ish, right? But, but maybe that's because in some ways that's the limit of our philosophical sort of understanding. And you know, I did the moves and I followed the logic and, and guess what? It just all matched up, you know, and it's like, you know, because Adam knew God, Adam did not know good from evil. And so in some ways, you know, that demonstrates a separation, you know, and he didn't know good and evil right until he ate the fruit and he understood then good and evil apart from God and sin was born. Right. And when, you know, God always said things like, you know, if you leave the light and you leave my sight, you know, and, and all these bad things can happen, right? Which totally meshes with all that logic that I just went through. And I wasn't going by the Bible. Like, you know, he says, oh, you know, you leave my sight and I can't see you like in the darkness and in sin and evil. I wasn't going by the Bible. Like I was going through logic that said, you know what, like, like evil and stuff is apart from God, you know, and but Bible led me there too. Like if I was following the Bible, the Bible says stuff like that. And logic led me there too. So just saying, you know. And so by following this logic, where man concludes logically that God exists apart from good and evil, guess what? Right now, your mind is standing in the Garden of Eden with me. Well, or my mind is, and you're seeing through my eyes. And I wasn't following scripture to get there, right? It was secular logic. You know, it's it just really simple. So if an all-powerful God can do anything, 
and everything God does is good, then everything is good because God can do it. So then it follows that in order to be all-powerful, God can only be all-powerful if no neutral or evil things or acts or anything exists. And the corollary that is therefore, like he, he must destroy all neutral and evil things, right? Everything not good, not of God, to logically sort of reclaim sort of the, you know, all-powerfulness. Because if there's a thing that if you do it, if it's sin, God can't do it. And God can't do something sinful, and so then he can't really do everything, so he can't really be all-powerful. So the only way for him to resume that sort of full glory is to destroy all evil and sin, which the Bible says is going to happen, and and probably neutral too. Um, So in heaven, I'm sure dog farts are coming off the menu, so hallelujah. But God planted the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And he's omniscient, and he had to know it was going to happen. He knew Eve was going to eventually demand that Adam take her for date night to dinner at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He knew it was going to happen. Could have chopped it down, right? But he didn't. He didn't chop it down. So did God sacrifice his infinite power voluntarily so that we could know good and evil and have free will? You know, in some ways I started thinking, did he love us so much that he, he voluntarily sort of abandoned ultimate power and let sin in the world a place that you know he could not or maybe he just didn't let himself go so that we could choose for ourselves and because if we didn't choose to love him right like you know dogs kind of unconditionally love us sort of he maybe didn't want us to be like dogs right he he wanted us to love him out of choice and maybe when he decides to take his power back and he kind of destroys neutral and evil like you know, maybe the snakes will be in the evil and neutral zones, right? And so then he wants everybody to be kind of safe and sound in the good spot. And, the, you know, the garden will be full of good guys again. You know, but anyway, but sometimes, and this is where I think we're kind of, everything kind of breaks down is, I think we judge God, right? We try to be God. Because, I mean, how many times have you seen, like, Christians, you know, killing other people and condemning those in history, who don't believe in our God, you know, or Muslims condemning non-Muslims or trying to kill people who don't believe in Allah the way that they do. I mean, there's plenty of that today and all throughout history, right? And I don't think we need any of that to get close to God. Like, wouldn't it be great if, like, no Christian ever killed another Muslim and no Muslim ever killed another Christian? Like, so, I mean, but the thing is, where we get in trouble is, I think, is when we, like, try to judge God. Like, if you say... God is good. I mean, are you judging God? I mean, because like when you go into court, right, it's like, you know, innocent, guilty, or well, you, nobody's ever innocent. They're just guilty or not guilty. But when you, but when you think about it, like good, evil, you know, I mean, um, I think if we try to boil down God into a character that we can comprehend, right, I think in some ways by doing that, by sort of conceptualizing, by reducing him to something that we understand, Maybe we denature like the true divine omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience. Even so, even though we say God is good, we're sort of judging God in the the act of judging God and reducing His existence to our comprehension as good. Maybe we're denaturing His divinity, and maybe the limit of our language and our comprehension is the reason we can't rationalize a perfectly good God. Maybe it's because we're not perfectly good. Maybe we're just describing what we think we see when we look at our own shadows on the back of Plato's cave cast by the light 
of divine perfection behind us. You know, the secular logic does seem irrefutable to us, right? Like, I mean, it might be irrefutable, but not because there's a problem with divinity. Maybe the problem is created when we try to judge and comprehend the divine. But as I see it, it's, it's only when I do the secular logic and I arrive at the conclusion that God might not be all-powerful or that his reach is perhaps limited by sin and evil. And you know it makes sense that when we go into evil, we leave God's sight, right? And then maybe, at least until perhaps he sent Jesus Christ, right, to walk among us in the darkness to kind of go in where God, you know, either couldn't or didn't let himself or limited himself to go. And like Jesus went into the darkness, right? So maybe he's not quite as limited as our logic might deceive us into believing, or maybe he just chose to limit himself. But it's only when I tried to comprehend God, when I tried to intellectually justify his existence with sort of logic and philosophy, and everything that sort of I believe as spiritual truth just kind of started to disintegrate. But it was only then that like the sin and the farts and the good and the evil and the Garden of Eden and the fruit of knowledge of good and evil and the infection of sin in the world and the limits on God and evil and then sort of the necessity of Jesus to like kind of go in where, you know, God, we already sort of, you know, philosophized that God couldn't go. That like Jesus went, went into the darkness to get us, to rescue us, you know. And, and so all those pieces kind of fit together perfectly, like right there. And, you know, at the same time, I was being intellectually truthful to the sort of secular philosophical path, you know, that I had, you know, kind of set off on. And that path led me right back into the Garden of Eden. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons that I learned today. That's another reason that I believe. It's not the only reason, but it's the newest one. But what made it so special is because I kind of felt like I was becoming this intellectual prodigal son, right? And I was like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I was trying to be intellectually true to what I sort of started out. I was like, okay, I got to do this secular philosophy kind of analysis. And it made me uncomfortable. But then when I looked up, like all of a sudden, boom, I was standing, you know, in the Garden of Eden in the shade of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit had led me home. And in my mind, I think that can only be like to follow that sort of kind of gnarly evil path and end up there. It's only by the grace and mercy of God. And here's one more thing. And it wasn't in the class. This was one of those lightning bolts I lassoed today. A logical revelation revealed to me during my illumination. And that is if in an infinite universe... If this divine perfection of God is conceivable, if it is conceivable, then it must be possible. And in an infinite universe, anything that is possible is necessarily inevitable. So therefore, in an infinite universe such as ours, a divine perfection incapable of comprehension by the human mind necessarily must exist. And that is a fact.